You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. Hey, if you're a regular member in our church, surprise. Um, if you're new, then just welcome. Welcome to Red Door Church. I'm going to tell you a lot more about why it is that we've uh, changed our name and embarked on a new season here this morning. Uh, but if you are joining us for the first time or, or maybe just visiting, um, we are in week 16 of a 22-week series in the first half of the book of Exodus, and uh, it's been an incredible journey for our church, learning more about really the foundations of our faith as Christians today. And uh, so I'm just going to recap a little bit about what Exodus is about, and then we'll just jump into the text. In this church, we just like to read a little bit and then chat a bit and read a little bit more, and so we'll do that this morning. So the book of Exodus really has its foundations in the book of Genesis, the book that comes before it, Uh, we see in in Genesis chapter 12, God comes to Abram, a regular dude, nothing special about him, not particularly religious, pagan, comes to Abram and he says, I'm going to make you the father of many nations. I'm I'm choosing you to be the father of my people. These are the people that are going to bless the world. And so out of this old, decrepit old man and his wife, Sarai, he brings forth this great nation. And we see, though the plan of God is always under threat as long as his people are under threat, he does bring forth a nation out of Abram. Abram, Abraham, gives birth to Isaac. Isaac gives birth to Jacob. Jacob gives birth to Joseph. You might know Joseph. He was the kid who was sold into slavery by his own brothers He ends up in the land of Egypt, and that's how the Israelites come to be in Egypt. While he's there governing Egypt, being blessed by God, the people of Israel are are suffering at the hands of a famine. They make their way into uh, Egypt looking for refuge, and they find Joseph there. Joseph welcomes them, even though they had abandoned him. And Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, welcomes them as well and invites them to settle in his land, his abundant land that God is blessing to provide for his covenant people. So everything's good in the land of Egypt with Jacob and Joseph and the rest. But fast forward 400 years and things aren't so good. 400 years later, we find ourselves in the book of Exodus. We find ourselves not under a benevolent ruler, but under a tyrant, Pharaoh. This is the guy that we have been coming face to face with and coming to terms with really every week throughout this series. He is the, he is the baddest dude in the Bible so far. Right? If you take, take for granted the serpent, next in line, Pharaoh. He is a bad dude. He he does not want the Israelites. He's threatened by them because God is blessing them, making them abundant so that he can fulfill his covenant promises, ultimately realized in the life, death, and burial of Jesus. He's made them prosper. And Pharaoh, like all tyrants, is very insecure. And so he hatches a plan to get rid of them. First, he thinks, I'll work them to death. So he makes them slaves. And he gets them to do all of his public work, some of which you can see to this day in Egypt. Works them to the bone, but God's promises won't be thwarted by any earthly ruler. And so actually under the thumb of 
Pharaoh, the people become more numerous. And so he gets more insecure, more panicked. And so he comes up with a second plan. That is that every son born to an Israelite should be thrown into the river Nile. And it's insanity, but he goes through with it. And son after son after son is thrown into the river Nile to perish. One of them is saved. Moses, born to an Israelite family, kept secret for three months, finally sent down the river in a basket, a little ark, and rescued by the daughter of Pharaoh himself. The irony is beautiful. God works through even his enemies to bring about his purposes. And so Moses is rescued. He's brought up in the household of Egypt. Eventually, he sees the plight of his people. He loses his mind. He kills an Egyptian, flees out into the wilderness, into Midian. And 40 years go past. He's 80 now. God calls him from the bush that wasn't burning and tells him, I've heard my people's cry. I've remembered my covenant with them. It's time that my people were set free. And so he works through this man, Moses. Flawed, right? A murderer. Flawed, but faithful. And God works through him, as we've seen in successive weeks, to bring Pharaoh to his knees. That doesn't happen immediately. We've seen up until today nine plagues that God has sent against Pharaoh. Really, this is not a book about Moses versus Pharaoh. This is a book about God, Yahweh versus Pharaoh. Pharaoh thinks that he's a God. He literally does, right? He literally thinks that he is divine, but God alone is king. And so you have this collision, this inevitable collision. And it's a series of collisions that happen in the form of plagues. God sends these plagues against the land of Egypt. Pharaoh at first is kind of thinks he should relent, and then his heart is hardened, he turns away from God, continues on his trajectory of rebellion, away from God, and so through nine successive plagues, God gives him this opportunity to relent, to repent, to bow the knee to the true king, and he doesn't, he doesn't, and he doesn't, but he's about to. So we come up to last week's passage, and we read about this 10th and most terrible plague. In in chapter 11, if you want to go there, in verse 4 to 5, Moses said, this is what the Lord says. About midnight I will go throughout Egypt. Every firstborn son in Egypt will die. From the firstborn son of Pharaoh who sits on the throne to the firstborn son of the female slaves who is at her hand mill and all the firstborn of the cattle as well. This is the great and terrible tenth plague that God will send against Pharaoh to show him who reigns. In fact, he said way back in chapter 4 that this is exactly what was going to happen because he had taken God's own firstborn son captive because he had taken God's people captive and put them to death. So he was going to put the firstborn of Egypt to death. And so we're kind of standing on the doorstep of this most terrible event, the 10th plague. And I want to pick it up 
at verse 1 of chapter 12. So if you've uh, got that Bible near you, make sure you're in chapter 12, and I'll read verse 1 to 7. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, This month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. Just a note, whenever you change your calendar for a new New Year's Day, you know that's a big deal, all right? It's like um, if America tomorrow decided that the 4th of July would now be the first day of the year, that's what's happening here. God is saying this is going to be so significant. This event is going to echo throughout history to the degree that we are starting a new year today. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of the month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If the household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people there are. You are to determine the the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be a year old, males, without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and the tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. This is the first red door we read of in the Bible. Right? Blood shed on the doorposts and on the lintel. Blood shed by a lamb without defect. Blood that was shed as a substitute for the people. This is the red door, and this is the first time we come across it in the Scriptures, and then from then on it just echoes through salvation history, finding its fulfillment ultimately in Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so for us, this new name, the new name of our church, and all of the symbolism that goes along with it is tied inextricably to this event. I remember, it's almost six years ago now, very close to six years ago, I interviewed for the role of pastor at this church. And um, it was the easiest interview I'd ever done because I wasn't taking the job. That had already been decided. I did it as a favor to the bishop who kept asking me to do it. And the truth was, Renee and I, and then India, almost a year old, we knew that we were moving to Perth. So we had just accepted a job with an Anglican church in Cottesloe, otherwise known as the kingdom of God, right? Just beautiful. Like, apart from the great white sharks, it's, it is, that's heaven, right? And so we'd flown over there, we'd interviewed, we'd stayed there for a few days, the people were amazing, we had been given this opportunity perhaps to plant a church in the future, which is what I was really keen to do, and so I went to this interview, and if you've never done it before, go to a job interview where you don't want the job, it's awesome. No nerves. And so I did the interview, and then that night, uh, we had just moved out of the church house where I had been working. Uh, we were between churches. We were going to move to Cottesloe. And so we were at Dan's house, my mother-in-law, at, uh, at your house. We were sleeping there. And uh, that night, I just couldn't sleep. And even though I knew we weren't taking the job, we had actually we told our family, we're moving. We'd done all the hard bit of, of, 
of, of breaking the news, we're moving a continent away, right? I just couldn't sleep. I kept thinking about this church. I'd never been to Caroline Springs in my life. I'm not sure I'd even been on this side of the Westgate Bridge before, right? Just to be honest with you. And, and, and I, I just couldn't get it out of my mind. And, and I don't want to overplay this and say it was some kind of like, you know, like super spiritual event, but it was indelible in my memory. I had this vision of Red Door Church. I had this vision of this church being named Red Door Church. And my mind went straight to the Passover in Exodus, and I'd never had any of these thoughts before. Uh, I wasn't drawing on some previous experience. It was just like a bolt out of the blue. And ever since that day, it's been in the back of my mind, and it's been gnawing away at me. And if you've been on parish councils or leadership teams, you'll know that every now and then I'll just bring it up as maybe a bit of a possibility. And now, six years later, almost to the day, we've arrived here. And so, for me, this kind of carries a little bit of extra significance. I feel like I've been waiting and waiting and waiting for so long for this day. And I do believe that it's what God would have for us in this place. We don't want to overplay it. It's really not a huge deal. I'm going to talk a little bit later, or you can read in your booklets, about how actually this doesn't change a lot for us. We're the same church with the same mission. All we're doing really, ultimately, everyone look right at me. This is really important. All we're doing this morning is just making our name align a little bit more with who we already are. So 3,000 years ago, from the first red door up until today, this, this has had huge significance for the people of God. The question is, right back in the text, why do they need the red door? Why do they need this blood on their doorposts? Let's read verse 12 and 13. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am. Remember that? I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. I lived in America for a couple of years and I found it really interesting, at least where I was, all of the mailboxes out the front of people's houses had little flags on them. You guys seen this? Maybe in the movies? Or... And um, I never knew what it meant until I found out when I was staying with uh, someone in their home that um, if if you want to post a letter, you don't have to go down to the post office and wait in line for an hour and a half, right? All you have to do is put it in your mailbox, put up the little flag, and then the postie drops off your letters and picks them up as well. It's a nice little system, right? So the little red flag, it's, it has, by law has to be a red flag, is a sign to the postie that you need some mail delivered. But that's not what is what is going on here, right? The red door is not a little flag to God that lets him know that people trust him, that people are doing what he said, that people are wanting to be saved from the coming plague. This is not about what God needs. This is about what the people need. God sees into every human heart. Right throughout this room this morning, going back 3,000 years, he sees into every human heart. He doesn't need external ceremonies or signs to show him his people, show him who 
It's trusting him. This is not for Yahweh. This is not for the angel of death. This is for the people themselves. The reason they need this lamb's blood spread on their doors is because every single one of them is liable to judgment. Every single one of them deserves death. We talked a lot about this last week, right? Record-breaking low download numbers for last week's sermon, just by the way, right? We talked about judgment. We talked about how we're all deserving of judgment. It's a hard message, but it's the truth. You can't read the book of Exodus without learning this truth vividly. Everyone deserves death. And so what's happening here in this plague is, is just the natural course of events sped up. People are going to die because of sin, and that has always been the way. This is a speeding up of the natural turn of events. Ever since Genesis 3, at the fall of mankind, God has been really open with us. He said, even before the event, the wages for sin is death. If you turn away from me, death will come. And so everyone who has ever died has died because of sin. I'm not saying people die because they're really massively sinful. I'm saying death exists in the first place because of sin. And so death is coming because of the sin and unbelief of the people. And it's not just the Egyptians. This is the Israelites as well. Everyone is deserving of this judgment. And so everyone desperately needs this lamb to stand in their place, to be slaughtered in their place, to be a substitute for them. The wages for sin is death. Everyone in this room is deserving of it. Not just death, but eternal death. And so let me tell you, I've got three things that I think being red door means for us, reminds us of. Okay, first one, being red door church, that's what it says up the top, it's a little bit faint, all right? Being red door church reminds us that we all need Jesus. I've had fun over the years looking out at this congregation, which is very eclectic, right? I grew up in Diamond Creek, widest suburb in Australia. That's a record. At least something like, I think we've got a, maybe, do we have a couple of Asians now? We've had Annalie for a few years, but I think there's a couple of Asians there now. Right. So it's, it's getting more multicultural. But where I grew up, if you go to church, there isn't so much color in the room. It's a little bit boring, to be honest. I've looked down on this congregation, not just seen so much color, but also so many different backgrounds, even church backgrounds, Right. There's about three of you who would say, I'm an Anglican. The rest of you are just from all over the place, right? All over the map in terms of ecclesiology, in terms of the churches you've come from. We've got lots of people who have who've come out of Catholic churches. We've got lots of people who come out of Pentecostal churches. And we've got this big melting pot. And what we love to say is the thing that unites us all is that we're all sinners in need of a savior, right? That's what unites us. It's not music preference, right? Or color scheme, or probably even choice of new name for church, right? None of, that, none of that stuff unites us. What we can all say, we all share together, is a desperate need for Jesus. So being Red Door Church, that reminds us of that. It reminds us that blood needs to be shed, lest we perish. I love the way that Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 5. He says, Jesus, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. 
The people of Israel had little bleeding lambs. We have Jesus. He's our Passover lamb. He's the fulfillment of all of those shadows that came before him. All of those shadows that were sacrificed for the people of God. I love what um, John the Baptist, crazy guy, right, in the Gospels, right at the beginning of John's Gospel in, in, in chapter 1, verse 29, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In the first chapter of John's Gospel, John The Baptist identifies Jesus as who he really is. He's not just a good teacher. He's not just a kind healer. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's who we worship. Let's keep going a little bit up to um, verse 21 to 23. Let's read that. Then Moses summoned all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go at once and select the animals for your families and slaughter the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop, dip it in the blood in the basin and put some of the blood on the top and on both sides of the doorframe. None of you shall go out of the door of your house until the morning. When the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on top and sides of the doorframe and he will pass over that doorway. And he will not permit the destroyer to enter your houses and strike you down. Having a red door meant safety for the people of Israel. Having that blood secured them. And so that's why in the the end of verse 23, it says, God will not permit the destroyer to enter your houses. These houses became refuges for those people, such that they weren't even allowed to leave them. That was a safe place for them. Even from the coming wrath of God, which they deserved, it became a safe place because of the blood that was spread on the doorposts. Jimmy mentioned earlier the historical significance of the Red Door, and you can read about it in your booklet or on our new website, reddoorchurch.com.au. It's all there. Um, The significance, I love the historical significance. One of the reasons we love being Anglicans is because it roots us in history, 500 years of of history and tradition. And here with the Red Door, this roots us in 3,000 years of tradition and history. Going right back really to the, the, the beginning, obviously, in the Exodus, but throughout church history in the Middle Ages, at the very beginning of cathedral architecture, right? When they were coming up with the whole idea of a cathedral in the first place, from the beginning, they, they painted the doors of the cathedrals in red to signify refuge and sanctuary. And in fact, throughout various periods of history, it was law that if you made your way into and behind the red door, you would find safety. Even from the law, you would find refuge, sanctuary. This year we celebrate 500 years of the Reformation, the, the Protestant Reformation, and, and, and the Reformers in the, the years after that Reformation started painting their churches with the blood of Jesus symbolically. They painted them red to show that they, as Reformed churches, were trusting in Jesus' blood alone, that it wasn't on the basis of the Pope or the saints or anything else that they were safe. They were safe in faith because of the blood that was shed 
by their saviour. Then even further forward in history, the Civil War, right? The big civil war between the north of America and the south of the United States, a war fought over slavery, most of the people in the north agitating for, for, um, for, for wholesale freedom for slaves, people in the south wanting to keep a hold of their African slaves. There were some in the south who were betraying their own people and siding with those in the north on the basis of their conscience, believing that because African slaves were made in the image of God, they deserved to be free. And so they aligned themselves with the north and they set up in the south this underground railway. You should read up on this, it's amazing. They set up this underground railway so that they could ship out slaves up into the north where they'd be saved. And along the way, people who were aligned with this cause to set the slaves free would paint their doors red as a sign of refuge and safety. To this day in Scotland, many people will paint their door red on the day that they pay their mortgage off. And it's the same echo, right? It's, it's the sense that I've been set free from the chain that has held me to the bank all of these years. Right throughout history, a red door has been symbolic refuge, redemption, and rescue. And I pray that the same would be true of us. On many occasions, and it's brought a smile to my face, even perhaps a tear to my eye, on many occasions when people have said, when they first joined the church, they said, you know, I came here and this felt like a safe place. I came here and I saw other people who were struggling like I am other people who are broken like I am, other people who need Jesus as much as I do. I hope that's true of us. I hope this red door symbol means what it should mean for people, that this is a safe place to come, a place of refuge. But even more than that, it goes deeper than that. Because this, is, this, this red door symbol doesn't just mean a place of refuge but it means a place of redemption. The red door was a sign for the slaves in Egypt, the people of Israel, inextricably bound up in slavery. It was a sign to them that they had been set free. That's why they ate the meal with their belt, like stuff tucked into their belt, no yeast in the bread because that takes too long. We've got to be ready to go. We're breaking out of here. And it's been the same ever since. What unites us as people in this church is that we're all former slaves who have been set free. For For the slaves in Israel, the red door meant freedom. It meant safety. For the slaves in the USA, the red door was something to run to. It meant refuge and sanctuary. And both of those things are true of our church, I pray. So being red door reminds us that we all need Jesus and being red door reminds us that we are safe in Jesus. This is our place of safety. This is our place of refuge. I love how Peter says it in 1 Peter 
chapter 1, verse 18 and 19, it says, You know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed, right? That's the word that means brought out of slavery from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. You see the fulfillment? He is our perfect lamb. He is our sinless lamb. He is the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And it wasn't gold that bought us out of slavery. It was his blood. That's why we're safe. All right, last little bit, all right? Stick with me. Last two verses, verse 29 and 30. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat on the throne, to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon, and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night, and there was loud wailing in Egypt, for there was not a house without someone dead. God does not make any empty threats. This great and terrible plague has come on the people of Egypt and it will be the thing that finally breaks Pharaoh's pride. Now I want you, just as we finish up now, I want you to imagine a scene. I want you to imagine a scene on the afternoon before that terrible night, the night when the angel of death comes through the land of Egypt, destroying the firstborn. You might even like to just close your eyes to imagine it. I don't know, you do what you like. But this scene with two Hebrews, Judah and Benjamin. Judah and Benjamin chatting to each other over the fence. Judah says to Benjamin, how are you feeling about tonight? A little bit nervous. Benjamin says, well, what, what are you nervous about? Moses is God's servant. He's told us exactly what to do. I mean, have, have you painted your, your doorposts with the blood of the lamb? Have you, have you done that? Judah says, yeah, I've, I've done it. But I'm nervous about it. I mean, things have got crazy around here recently. The boils and the blood and the, the locusts and darkness and all that stuff is crazy. Of course, I've done it. I trust that Moses is God's servant. I, I trust that God is making a way for us out of here. But it's easy for you to be blase, Benjamin. I mean, you've got six sons. I've, I've got one, little Jonathan. But one son. If this doesn't work, then I've I got nothing. I mean, I, I, I'm, I do, I, I've done it. I've, 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 my, my door is red. I trust in God's promises. But I'll be glad when this night is over, Benjamin. Benjamin. Benjamin says, bring it on. I trust in the promises of God. When the angel of death moves through the land of Egypt that night, destroying the firstborn, which of the two sons is spared? Both of them. 
That's the good news for you and for me. Both of them are spared. Because here's the thing. The angel of death doesn't pass over each household on the basis of the intensity of the faith of God's people, but on the basis of the blood of the Lamb. That's the grounds of God's grace. It's the blood of the Lamb that saves us, not the intensity or the clarity of our faith. That's the good news of the gospel. That's why we love this symbol. It reminds us that it's all about Jesus. From start to finish, it's all about Jesus. So that when you come in next Sunday morning at the new time of nine o'clock, when you come in and the accuser is in your ear saying, you don't have enough faith to be among these people. You don't belong here. Think about the week that you've had then our rebuke to the accuser is not on the basis of our faith. Well, I've been pretty good this week. No, it's on the grounds of the blood of the lamb that was shed for us. It's all about Jesus. That's why we love to say that we are a community of people helping people make all of life all about Jesus. That is the grounds and the basis of our security and our salvation. So number three, being Red Door Church reminds us that it's all about Jesus. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. There is so much more that can be said about this. I encourage you to read through the booklet, jump on the website, dig deeper. We'll be running some classes about Uh, specifically some of these uh, symbols that you see before you, some of the environments that we want to be doing ministry in. We'll be doing all of that. But now, forget about all of that. And remember that it's all about Jesus. I'm going to read a little passage for you. I'm going to ask that you close your eyes. I'm going to read a little passage for you, which is a picture of the future that we will all share in with great joy. And it's a picture that comes to us from Revelation chapter 5. So just close your eyes, bow your heads, and imagine the scene. The Apostle John, giving a window into heaven, says, Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation." You have made them to be a kingdom of priests 
to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honour and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honour and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Father in heaven, we thank you. We praise you for the Lamb of God that was slain. We praise you for the blood of Jesus that not only atones for our sin, but secures our salvation. We thank you for this symbol, this ancient symbol of the red door, which speaks of our need for Jesus and our safety in Jesus and the fact that it's all about Jesus. I pray for those here this morning that don't yet know what it means to be saved. Lord, please, by your Spirit, it's only by your Spirit will you bring them to faith in the Lamb that was slain. I thank you and praise you that it's not on the basis of the clarity or intensity of our faith that we are saved, but it's on the basis of the blood that was shed for us. And so now I pray in this new season of life for this church that you would continue to do what you have always done, that you would bless us, that you would cleanse us, that you would change us, that you would enable us to make all of life all about Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.